This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good evening, and welcome to the Australian Museum. My name is Sue Saxon, and I'm a creative producer here at the AM. On behalf of all those present, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and to their elders, past, present, and emerging. They are the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Tonight, we're really excited to present the fourth of nine talks in the inaugural Human Nature Lecture Series. We're almost halfway through this stimulating landmark series, a collaboration of four major universities with the Australian Museum and leading national and international academics in the environmental humanities. The Australian Museum seeks to make nature, indigenous cultures and science accessible and relevant to everyone. It is the custodian of a collection of more than 19 million objects, providing a record of the environmental and cultural histories and diversities of the Australian Pacific regions. The museum's scientific collections and ongoing research informs our understanding of some of the most pressing environmental and social challenges facing our region, including the loss of biodiversity, a change in climate, and the assertion of cultural identity. So the past meets the future at the museum. Exploration and care for our world is inspired by the research of our scientists and cultural specialists, by our exhibitions, and by extraordinary events such as this Human Nature Lecture Series, through which we strive to investigate and communicate the relationship between people, culture, and the natural environment. Please join us after tonight's lecture for the second half of the series too, and let your friends and colleagues know because we have an outstanding lineup of speakers in the wings. And so to introduce our special guest, it's my great pleasure to invite Dr. Estrida Neymanis, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney, and one of the organizers of the Human Nature Lecture Series to introduce Professor Oren Katz, Estrida. Hi, good evening. Um, I'll hope, I hope you will indulge me um, this short bio. Um, it's really, truly extraordinary, and it is my great pleasure indeed to introduce Oren Katz tonight. Oren is the director of Symbiotica, the Center of Excellence in Biological Arts in the School of Human Sciences at the University of Western Australia. Um, Oren Katz is an artist, researcher, designer, and curator whose pioneering work in the tissue culture and art project, which he established in 1996, is considered a leading biological art project. In 2000, he co-founded Symbiotica, a biological art research center at WA, and under Katz's leadership, Symbiotica has gone on to win the inaugural Prix Art Electronica Golden Nika in hybrid art um, in 2007, as well as the WA Premier Science Award in 2008, and became a Center for Excellence in 2008 as well. In 2009, uh, Professor Katz was recognized by Thames and Hudson's, quote, 60 Innovators Shaping Our Creative Future book in the category Beyond Design, and by Icon Magazine in the UK as one of the top 20 designers making the future and transforming the way we work. His interest is life. More specifically, the shifting relations and perceptions of life in light of new knowledge and its applications. Often working in collaboration with other artists, primarily Dr. Yonat Zur, um, and scientists, Katz has developed a body of work that speaks volumes about the need for new cultural articulation of evolving concepts of life. Katz was also a research fellow at the Harvard Medical School, a visiting scholar at the Department of Art and Art History at Stanford University, and a visiting professor of design interaction um, from 2009 to 2012, and a professor at large, I love that, <laughs> in contestable design from 2015 to 2017 at the Royal College of Arts in London. From 2012 to 2013, he set up a biological art lab called Biophilia, the base for biological art and design at the School of Art, Design and Architecture at Aalto University in Helsinki, where he remains a visiting professor. Katz's ideas and projects reach beyond the confines of art. 
His work is often cited as inspiration to diverse areas such as new materials, textiles, design, architecture, ethics, fiction, and food. He has curated 10 exhibitions, developed numerous artistic projects and performances. His work has been exhibited and collected by museums such as the MoMA in New York, the Mori Art Museum, the NGV, GOMA, the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, Ars Electronica, and the National Art Museum of China, amongst others. Um, most recently, he has also been named one of the three international advisors of the Advisory Board of Biotopia in Munich, which is reimagining the national, sorry, the Natural History Museum for the 21st century. I think it's worth pointing out that the other two international advisors are uh, the chief curator of design and architecture of the MoMA and the head of collections at the Wellcome Trust. So indeed, Oren is in very fine company. Um, and in addition to all of that, Oren is a warm, generous, humorous individual who truly values uh, curiosity and collaboration. And those are the reasons why I'm most delighted to welcome him to the podium now. Oh, okay, I, I can go home now. I think that's enough. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll start with the trigger warning. Uh, first, can we dim the light a bit, please? Yes. Uh, so I'll start with the trigger warning. Uh, some of the images might be disturbing. Some of the concept, hopefully, would be very disturbing. And I tend to swear as well, so just, you know, stick with that. Um, and also, this is another form of uh, trigger warning in the sense of we need to remember the idea of idealized social contracts because, as you heard, I'm wearing quite a few different hats, yeah? And whatever hat you choose to listen to me as would determine how seriously you're going to take what I'm going to say. So let me start by saying that I really self-identify myself more than anything else as an artist. And as an artist, I have a license to tell you stories that are not necessarily verifiable, yeah? So by definition, don't trust a word I'm going to tell you. But then on the other hand, I have no interest in not telling you that I'm lying to you, so maybe you should trust me more than you trust all of those other professions up there. <laughs> because they've got an interest to hide the fact that they're telling you stories. And it is getting quite confusing now. Those boundaries between those idealized uh, contracts that we have as professionals, and even more importantly, that institutions like this institution here have with you are starting to blur. We're all being bullshitted, yeah? Fake is everywhere, and this is something that uh, I want to kind of maybe try and unpack even more. So, so people like Yuval Noah Harari, this uh, popular historian that wrote uh, the book Sapiens, uh, is talking about the fact that uh, we inherited our, culture, our current political systems and by extension actually quite a lot of other institutions, uh, and he talks whatever communism or, or liberal democracies from the Industrial Revolution, and he doesn't think, and this is one of the very few points that I actually agree with him, he doesn't think, and I don't uh, uh, think as well, that either of them can survive those new and different realities that are coming upon us through uh, biotechnology and artificial intelligence. So I'll be talking more about the first, about biotechnology, and how those new different realities are really going to mess up with all of those current institutions. Now, it's not just Harari that was talking about it, it's even, the World Economic Forum that's obviously trying to establish their continuous, continuous kind of a, a dominance over our lives and over our economies that recognized it in a recent publication uh, titled uh, Shaping, the Future, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution, a Handbook for Citizens, Policymakers, Business Leaders, and the Social Influencers. Uh, just by that title, you know that there's something wrong about that. Uh, but anyway. They're talking about the fact that we face the task of understanding and governing the 21st century technologies with 20th century mindsets and 19th century institutions, like this one that we are being at the moment. Industrial change, institutional change, is therefore critical to overcoming those challenges, but so, and this is the important bit, the mindset adapted to the 21st century challenges we face. So what I hope to do is at least to provoke you into thinking about the fact that things are starting to fall apart. Uh, quite a lot of what we see in the world at the moment is a kind of pushback towards the realization that those institutions are breaking down, our mindsets are not able to cope with the technologies that are coming upon us. And, and one of the best examples 
are the fact that life is becoming more like technology at the very same time technology become more lifelike. Yeah? So we are in a very, very interesting time in human history where we're starting to treat human-made systems as if they are natural phenomena in the sense that we already relinquish any possibility of controlling bottom-up systems that we as humans have created, like our economy, like driverless cars, like killer drones. We give autonomy to those systems and treat them as if they're alive at the very same time that our psychopathology of control is forcing us to try and control something else. So, you know, the, 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 the ambition to go to Mars, for example, is, is a great example of that. The realization that we fucked up this place so badly that we'll go to one of the most inhospitable places in the world and try to live there rather than try to fix what we have now, yeah? And controlling life. So controlling systems that already existed independently from our control, we have this fascination of trying to figure out how we're going to control them, and this is the field of synthetic biology, for example, that is all of the rage. The link between life and industry is not new. There's a really beautiful story about Henry Ford going to those meatpacking factories in the United States in the late 19th century, going to those disassembly lines where complex independent systems existed and then been obstructed to their components for him to realize that we can maybe reverse it and start to take obstructed items and bring them together into complex systems, and this is kind of the assembly line. Yeah? So we had to first disassemble life forms in order for us to start to assemble machines. Jacques Laub, he was a German-American scientist that worked between the 19th century and 20th century. He was credited as uh, basically the term artificial life was actually uh, initially coined to describe his work. He was doing things like the patho he developed systems of uh, doing pathogenesis of sea urchins, so basically creating life uh, in an artificial way. And he already, in the late 19th century, was talking about his dream to see biology moving from a merely descriptive discipline, which is what we see here in a museum, for example, to a prescriptive discipline, to an engineering pursuit. Yeah? So already, not that long after Darwin came out with the theory of evolution, people already were starting to think about, okay, if we start to understand the principles of how life evolves, we can start to think about life as a raw material for us to engineer. And this is something we see now. A another player in the game is uh, Alexis Carrel, who won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1912. He set up the uh, Laboratory for Experimental Surgery up on the roof of the Rockefeller Institute. He was the one who was credited into being not the first, but the one who was able to kind of uh, systematically figure out ways to keep fragments of complex bodies alive outside of the original body from which they originated. And this is what we refer to now as tissue culture. So basically you can grow cultures of cells and tissues that are taken from complex animals and organisms and keep them alive for long durations of time uh, using artificial and technological support. And this is kind of my area of interest. Uh, Carell also in 1935 wrote a pseudo-philosophical book called Men They Are Known. Was talking about immortality, actually, a lot of the ideas that we hear now about transhumanism are already embedded within his original book in 1935. In that book, he also wrote that, uh, or recommended the use of gas chambers to eliminate undesirable elements in human society. Yeah? So he, after the Germans invaded France, he went back to France to set up the Institute of Men, and because they lost the war, he was wiped out of history, and we should remember those stories. The cultural amnesia that we are all suffering of from is one of the worst things that we can imagine because many of the conversations that we have around life now were already played out in the early to the mid 20th century and were totally deleted from our memories in order for uh, us to kind of reimagine them now and to some extent even in a worse way. But one of the really interesting things is that one of Carell's assistants with him already recognized something which is quite obvious that through the discovery of tissue culture they discovered so to call a new type of body in which to grow the cell, this technological body. Now as an artist and as someone who's interested in mindsets, I was also really interested in what does it mean and where those bodies would go. Where are you going to put them? You need to find a way to culturally articulate the existence of the appearance, or the appearance and the existence of those new types of bodies. So a great example of what happens when we can't culturally articulate very well what's going on with life is this example here. This is a photo from uh, Buffalo in upstate New York from 1901. This represents the first premature baby ward in the United States, babies in incubators. 
Now notice those crowd control rails over there. And the reason for that, it was part of a freak show. Yeah. And we know that because when the Pan American Expo shut down and they were actually put within the oddity section rather than technology section at the time, the whole installation moved to uh, Coney Island to be one of the very first permanent displays in the fairgrounds there. And you can see over there it says living infants or infant incubators with living infants. And even when the medical establishment started to recognize the fact that uh, we have about 80% success rate as opposed to almost zero if those babies were be left for their own devices, they still distributed them for hospitals and amusement parks out of Dreamland, Coney Island. Now, there's many reasons for that. Yeah? One of them was that the Americans were actually the worst in eugenics. Yeah? They were basically saying those babies don't deserve to live because they're broken. Anyway, why you, would you care about keeping them alive? But the other thing, which is more important for what I'm trying to say, is that there was no other cultural place to put babies in incubators. There was no other place to put human bodies inside technological bodies beside the freak show because we didn't have the ability to culturally articulate the existence of bodies in machines at the time. And this is kind of the, the, the current situation as well in regard to quite a lot of those life forms that exist in this kind of connection, in the line between technology or between culture and what people refer to as nature. Yeah? So those life forms that exist between those two places are as good as the freak shows that, or those babies in incubators in the freak shows uh, that we've seen in the early 20th century. This lasted for about 40 years, by the way. Um, as far as we know, the first manipulated living systems that were exhibited as art was in 1936 in MoMA in New York. That's the work of Edward Steichen, the photographer, who was also manipulating different types of flowers using different types of mutagenic agents, including his asthma medicine, to kind of try and create those monsters. And when he was happy with them, he ended up showing them as part of his exhibition in MoMA in New York. So this is kind of historically is considered to be the very first time, although I would imagine that, you know, if you think about bonsai, if you think about other, if you think about flower arrangements, there's different types of monsters that were created by humans for aesthetic reasons that have been displayed in this context. But this is kind of the new way of thinking about deliberately manipulated life forms that were put within a cultural context. But you, you have other things, like this is from the Medical Museum in Riga, and that was a, a, a Soviet-era experiment of trying to basically put, uh, do a head transplant, and we hear a lot about it recently. This specific one was actually made specifically for the museum. So it was about 30 years or 20 years after the scientists were doing it, and they wanted to have one on display, so they commissioned the scientists to do one for them. According, we, we were in contact with the uh, curators. According to them, that was, Basically, the, the kind of this double-headed dog was alive in the museum for the first few days. And then uh, the story was that the small dog actually chewed the ear of the big dog, and you can actually see it on the display. And then after it died, they sent it to be toxodermic and brought it back to the museum as a museum object. Obviously, the most uh, kind of famous object, cultural object in a sense, uh, that uh, really impacted me, and I think hopefully impacted quite a lot of other people. From my perspective, this is the most important image of the late 20th century is the mouse with Iron Speck. Now, as an artist, that was what triggered me to start to work in this field. That work was done by scientists, um, but to a large extent, it was done specifically for the visual impact and capturing the imagination. And I can tell you, and I'll show you the story shortly about why it is. But in a sense, oh, but in a sense, this is kind of the surrealist dream comes alive. This is something that we, human imagination, always had this idea of this human animal chimera and suddenly it comes alive in 1995 and being presented across our TV screens. That was actually part of a documentary uh, that the BBC uh, produced around the future of bodies uh, back in 1995. Interesting enough, if you watch this documentary now, you would imagine it was produced now because the same kind of uh, uh, promissory type of rhetoric of body spare parts are just around the corner happened in 95 in the very same way that are happening now, those types of promises. But speaking about mindsets, it's obviously quite important to think about it as really as a watershed event. Now, what's quite interesting is something, a trope that you'll start to see more and more, this stage, the Petri dish. Yeah? So there is a new stage in which life operates, and that's the Petri dish, the laboratory, and it keeps on kind of creeping up more and more. Because the scientific images in the scientific paper that those scientists produces, you, you don't have the Petri dish, obviously. You don't have this type of staging. The staging was done deliberately for the TV cameras there. 
Now, one really, really interesting story. So there were four main scientists involved in the creation of this um, mouse. So you can see there's uh, Chow, Yilin Chow, a Chinese plastic surgeon, Vakati Joseph, and uh, Upton, and, but this guy over here, Charles Vacanti, he's the one that uh, took the credit for the mouse with Jerome's back. It's often being referred to as the Vacanti mouse. He, against the advice of his collaborators, decided to show it to the BBC. He, all of the others said, don't show them. You know, we can talk about everything else, but don't show them the mice. According to his story, I went and basically collected the oral histories from all of those scientists. According to his story, he couldn't stop himself. So after they already folded the cameras, he said, hey, do you want to see something cool? And I said, yes. So he pulls them to the back room, shows them a mouse with Aaron Beck. They pull out the camera and say, like, we can't not show it. And they show it. And, and in his words, he's an American in Boston. He basically says, ah, yeah, it was like a small regional TV kind of channel in the UK, the BBC. I never heard about them. And <laughs> off they go. Obviously, overnight, it, was, it became a sensation. He realized the importance, suddenly, that the, the cultural importance of the, and the first thing he does, he cuts the ear from the back of this mouse, cast it in resin as a museum-ready piece. Yeah? It is being transformed into a cultural object. There's no science you can do on a piece of tissue stuck in resin. Yeah? There's no data you can obtain from that. But from his perspective, he realized that this specific one, because they had quite a few mice, as you can see here. Oh, 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 oh. No, oh. um, yeah, so you can see there are quite a few mice there, but this specific one, the hero of the BBC documentary, became the one that had his ear cut off. Now, another kind of thing to, to kind of almost similar to what happened in the Medical Museum in Riga, in 2003, the Chinese are opening one of the biggest uh, science and technology museums in Shanghai, and they commissioned Yilin Chow, this Chinese plastic surgeon, to create a mouse with Aaron's back specifically for the museum. And again, a similar story, this mouse with Aaron's back was alive for the first couple of weeks. It was alive for the opening. People can interact with this mice. And then when it died, it was plastinized and put on display in the museum there. Now, Vacanti, realizing, as kind of he realized that this mice become a cultural icon, because as part of this exhibition I curated in 2015, I was collecting also um, popular culture references to the mouse with Aaron's back, and it's unbelievable. It's like, you know, things like South Park and uh, The Simpsons and CSI, and there's at least 50 different TV shows that were using the mouse with Aaron's back as an example of kind of for whatever. Yeah, so it became this really important cultural icon. And Vacanti says, hey, you know, this is mine. And he did something which is quite extraordinary for a scientist to do. He copyrighted any depiction in any media of an image of a mouse that has a human ear on its back. Yeah, so you can see um, this is a sculpture. Yeah, you have some drawings and a, photo a photograph. And, and the way I found out about it was also quite extraordinary. When I told him that I'm going to have this show, he said, I give you permission. I said, like, fuck that. Why, why do I need to get permission from you? And he said, because I copyrighted. I checked with lawyers. There's no way it can hold. But just this idea that a scientist is copywriting and trying to control the public imagination in regard to the depiction of this, whatever you want to call it, a creation, a monster, this hybrid, as a cultural object is something that we start to think about it in more, more seriousness. And, and this is kind of was one of the biggest conundrums about how do you treat those cultural objects which are both living and a technological artifact. Because Dolly the Sheep is a really interesting case. She was this technological marvel, in a sense. She was this breakthrough event within kind of the, the uh, progress of technology. But she looked like any other farm animal. There was nothing special about her. Yeah, so the mouse with your own spec, it's, it's obvious. But what do you do with something that looks like any other animal, but it is uh, such an important historical, technological, and cultural artifact? So if you go to the National Museum of uh, Scotland in Edinburgh, you would see Dolly. And this is her being wheeled in the museum towards a display because she was moved from the natural history section where she was kind of under the control of the curators there because they're the only, know, the only people who know how to kind of preserve and maintain a piece of previously living uh, artifact into the technological section where she lives now, or stuffed now, um, on a rotating petri dish next to the aeroplanes and the computers 
and many other technological artifacts, yeah? So this is kind of this conundrum. But what do you do also? How do you kind of worship something that looks like just a farm animal? You can do this. When I went to the Science Museum in London, in the welcome collection, in the welcome wing, I was able to encounter and worship Dolly's droppings. <laughs> yeah? This is amazing. You can start to fetishize even the sheet of a technological artifact as a museum object. Yeah? But what we never seen, and no museum had shown it to us yet, is those 277 failed attempts. Yeah? So we can have, we can worship the ship, but we can't even give thanks to all of those poor other animals that died in the process of creating this clone. <coughs> right. Museums are funny places. I like museums, but they are a really funny place. This is from the Natural History Museum in uh, Nantes in 2003. Uh, we tend to think about museums, and you see it over here in the Dead Zoo here, that uh, we tend to kind of worship and privilege the form of the organism. Yeah? It's, when you go and see those stuffed animals, the only thing that actually belongs to the original organism is the hide. It's being stretched over an idealized form of the animal. Obviously, there's two ways. One is the specimens are being kind of collected for research that are just stuffed as a way of kind of in the most convenient way. And then there's those that are really elaborated uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, toxodermy where the organism is being seen as if it's in action or somewhat, yeah? So, so those are those idolized forms. Obviously, when it comes to humans, it's a bit of an issue. This is a very disturbing image because this is from 2003 from France and they still had this a, a severed Maori head in collection, Egyptian mummy, and a hide or skin of a French soldier that died in the 1816 war. But this is how the museum collection looks now, now yeah? So we're moving away through this fetishization of uh, uh, technological approaches to life to engaging and privileging the information that is embedded within the tissue and the DNA of that organism. Totally decontextualized. You know, okay, granted, the, the stuffed animal is also decontextualized, but this is to a large extent even more decontextualized from those specimens on display here. And it's not that exciting. You know, trying to take my kids to go and see like a frozen bits of uh, vials is not that exciting. What museums are doing about it? How museums come to terms with the idea that we now moved away from privileging the form to privileging the information? You know, and both of them are extremely problematic. And in a sense, as you know, I myself uh, writing a lot about this concept of neo-lifeism, the fetishization of technological approaches of life. We talk about it. We say that living fragments of biological bodies, form of lab-grown life, because that's the other aspect that I'll talk shortly about, require different epistemological and ontological understanding, and by existence, different taxonomy of life. This liminality of, the kind, of this kind of technological approach can lead to a form of fetishization, or fetishism, which we call neo-lifeism. And this is something which we see time and time again. Now, museums are interesting as well. This is from the, uh, as I said, but this is kind of an interesting museum in a, for a different reason. This is the, the Natural History Museum in Vienna, which is a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So it's basically a museum of a museum. Yeah? So 80% uh, of the museum have to stay as it was. So the curators and the director of the museum, basically their job is just to keep things unchanging. But they have the 20% where they can do the kind of the changing exhibitions and they try their best to do something different about that. So, when in 2009, when there was the, the big celebrations around the um, 150 anniversary of the publication of The Origin of Species, they decided to have an exhibition titled uh, Evolution Revolution and they were trying to show kind of where that might lead us. So our friend Frankenstein is over here uh, Russian dolls, kind of this idea of where are we going in regard to the future of life. Uh, obviously, our friends Dolly and the mouse were there as well. So we had the death mask of Dolly and the mouse on the stage, on the Petri dish. But they also had a section dedicated to transgenic art. So artists who are working with genetic engineering as their art form. With a specific reference to an artist called Eduardo Katz, uh, who made a name for himself in the year 2000 by publishing an image of a green bunny, which I'll show you later. And they basically, some of you might read German, would understand what they're talking about, but basically talking about kind of this new move of doing creative evolution in a sense by allowing artists to interfere with this information that makes us who we are, or that's their perception. 
Uh, but what they decided to display was quite astonishing. They picked up one of the most scruffier, scruffiest hairs from their collection and shined a green light on it. Yeah? So this is Eduardo's image from 2000. This is the image of the museum, which actually appeared in their catalog as well, with a reference to Eduardo's work without ever asking permission, which is really strange. So if we go back to this idea of social contracts, where is the social contract of the museum at the moment in regard to this object? Are there truth-telling? Are they telling us the whole story? What's happening there? How are we going to respond to something that stands for an artwork that we're not even sure if ever existed because no green fluorescent protein positive organism would ever look like what Eduardo depicted that, but he's got the license to tell us stories. You know, no one was going to take him into account for telling us stories, but what's with the, with the Natural History Museum? So I had dinner with the director of the museum and I said, like, what the fuck? And he said, like, you artists are moving into my world, I can move into your world. So, so, so here we see kind of the breakdown of those contracts kind of happening in front of our very eyes. Uh, I don't have time to talk about this, but this is another really interesting example, which you might have to do your own homework, but this is also an interesting uh, scientific object that became a cultural object because of a PR disaster. Um, all right, so, so I, I think by now you understand that it's important to artists to engage with those things, or I hope that you understand that it's important for us to engage with those things. Uh, so in the year 2000, we established uh, Symbiotica, which is... Uh, now the Center of Excellence of Biological Arts. We are extremely interested in this idea of engaging in the most experiential way with the manipulation of life forms. So we are not just looking over the scientists' shoulders. We don't trust scientists. I love scientists, I love science, but I don't trust their stories. I want to know things for myself. So I want to understand the technologies they're using so I can do it. And that's what we do, and we train artists. So we basically, we have our own level two lab. We're one of the very few places in the world, we were the first that actually opened a level two laboratory specifically for artistic research and exploration of biology and life. We are very, very interested, obviously, in exploring those shifting perceptions of life, as you heard in the introduction. But also, we, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, if life becomes a raw material to be engineered, we're having a new palette for artistic possibilities one in which life is both the, up, the subject and the object of our manipulation. And you know, in a sense, this is our dream as artists from the dawn of time. Life was always something we were interested in. And here, now, life is both a new palette and a new subject, or not that new subject for us to engage with. For better or for worse, you know, your value judgments are extremely important, but keep them for yourself at the moment. Um, but we do also, and this is something that's very relevant to here, we research strategies and the implication of what does it mean to present living and especially manipulating, manipulated living biological objects within cultural contexts and uh, other different contexts. Now, museums are by definition places of death. Yeah? They're an acropolis. They're places that are designed to keep dead things as dead as possible for as long as possible. What does it mean to put something living inside there? What does it mean to put an object, which is a cultural object, that changes and shifts over time within the context of the art gallery and the Natural History Museum? How do you deal with those people? So at the moment, we're working on a pro big project to be presented at the Art Gallery of Western Australia in collaboration with the West Australian Museum. The curator just wrote a beautiful essay where he basically says, I'm scared shitless. I don't know what's going to happen there. And this is kind of the approach we get time and time again. Actually, this morning I got an email from the Pompidou Center saying, unfortunately, we can't show you live art or your live work in an exhibition titled Designing for Life. Yeah? This is kind of what I need to constantly engage with. What does it mean to put this manipulated life form within those contexts where the most resistance, the whole institutional uh, uh, apparatus is designed against it? Yeah? And we are developing our technologies for uh, basically research and display of living biological systems. As artists, sometimes our needs are very different than scientists. More often than not, we don't really have the budget to buy scientific equipment, so we build our own equipment as well for the specification of artists. So this is a work that was designed by an amazing designer called Matt Johnson for an artist, an Australian artist called Alicia King for a show that we had in Dublin. Uh, but in a sense, we also, so in Symbiotica, we, we develop all of the, we have to play the game. So we are an academic institution, so we run courses, academic courses, run a master's and a PhD. Um, we organize exhibitions, and I'll plug one shortly. Uh, more than anything else, we were established as a residency program. So since the year 2000, we had more than 120 residents. It's really unfortunate, we don't really have the budget, so people who come to do residencies with us actually pay us. Uh, but because we are the first, uh, 
and the only one for a really long time, it worked, and then run seminars and workshops. So this is the plug. Uh, in October this year, we're running a series of uh, exhibitions and, and a huge conference called the uh, uh, Quite Frankly. Some of you might know this year is the bicentenary of the publication of Frankenstein. We couldn't let it go, so we had to do something around it, and we decided to have this Unhollowed Hearts Festival. So uh, last count, we have about 23 different events going on around town in mid-October. Perth is not that far. Come over. Um, all right, so this is kind of, we decided also that uh, Symbiotica is a research lab that deals with questions about life from the submolecular to the ecological. So, you know, we're trying to not be too ambitious with our uh, needs or uh, wants. But uh, so we are doing anything from the submolecular, working with uh, different types of uh, uh, materials and elements all the way up to ecological systems. But we also have, and this is something that we found quite intriguing, that once we opened up the doors for residencies, we got uh, cultural geographers and ethicists and philosophers and other professions that we were the only conduit for them to be able to come into the lab and engage in an experiential way with what's going on in the lab. Again, not just trusting the scientists, but actually having the ability and having the, uh, 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 the facilities that allow them to engage in themselves with the materials. Uh, that's our masters. Uh, we think it's the most useful MBA around because the Master of Biological Arts rather than all of the other bullshit, uh, and uh, yeah, kind of worked. All right, now I'll move into my own work, if I have time, how am I going? Hmm? Ten minutes for me before I finish, or completely. All right. No, no, but, uh, okay, anyway, so, so this is kind of just to, in 1996, I wrote my thesis as a designer, so my background is product design, I was imagining a future where uh, design and biotechnology might come together. So basically, imagining this idea that uh, we can change our culture from a culture of manufacturing to a culture of growing. I was very naive. I thought that's going to solve all of the problems of the world. And uh, luckily, 20 odd years later, I realized that that's not really the case. And the promises that we have now are something that I actually engage a lot in kind of debunking because it's an extremely problematic proposition. Maybe in the question and answers, we can talk more about it. Uh, the shifting in our understanding of life really changed uh, this is how we imagine we repair the body in the 80s. This is true regenerative medicine in the 90s. The body becomes its own technology. I won't have time to talk too much about it because I want to talk about a couple of projects. Uh, but in 1996, I set up Witch and the Tissue Culture and Art Project, as a, a project that explored those questions, especially around the use of tissue technologies uh, from an artistic perspective. And it was an open-ended research at the time. Australia was open enough to support artists with open-ended research questions rather than with outcome-oriented, audience-building type of approach that we face now. And they gave us money to basically ask a question, is the use of living tissue can ever become a valid form of artistic expression? And, and funny enough, this is a question I'm still asking myself every morning, while obviously now there's hundreds of artists working with living tissue as their medium for artistic expression, but for me, what drives me is still the question, is it really valid? Um, anyway, the first lab, we were able to get into a lab. The first lab we worked in was the Lions Eye Institute in Western Australia. And uh, here it's kind of a bit disturbing, but this is what we were confronted by. Uh, we would get those half-rabbits, or the lab would get those half-rabbits heads in around lunchtime. We were told the rabbits were killed in the morning for food. The heads were sent to a brain research institute. And then those, the brains would be pulled out, and then those half-rabbits heads would arrive to our lab uh, around lunchtime. We would then, or the researchers, but that's we as well, that's you not, would take the eyes out because the lab was really interested. They were trying to develop artificial cornea. They were interested in uh, the, how the skin over the eye would respond to the different materials they were developing at the time. And uh, we would then put those eyes in the antibiotic solution and put them in the fridge overnight. So, so this, obviously, for all intended purpose, this is a piece of dead meat, yeah? Those are eyes that were pulled out of a piece of dead meat more than 24 hours after the animal was obviously killed and dead, we would have a chat with the scientists, and then we would look down the microscope, and we would see living cells. And this is where, you know, someone promised you, I'm going to tell you what, what is life. I can tell you how poor we are and the poverty of our language to describe what life is. Because we have 50 words to describe shit in the English language. We have only one word to describe life in all of, if, in all of its manifestations. So those cells are alive, but obviously not in the same way that the rabbit was alive 24 hours earlier. So that's where United myself started to talk about this idea of the semi-living. And we started to grow the skin over glass figurines. Then we basically uh, were able to start to grow sculptures and show them in 
cultural context. This is in Ars Electronica, in the Bruckner House. We set up a fully functioning lab in order to be able to show our live teacher engineered sculptures uh, in, the in the cultural context. What's quite interesting in this context is that we actually were, that's, everything you see here is the technological frame. The actual work was those tiny worry dolls that we grown. But in most cases, I can guarantee that most people only saw a bunch of artists taking stuff out of the lab and decontextualizing or recontextualizing it within a cultural context. And this is the problem that many artists working with technology have is that the technological frame takes over the actual content that they're interested in engaging with, okay? I won't have time to talk too much about this, but we're killing them as well as part of the, their existence, so it's really important for us also to show people what the fate of the life forms that we're involved with is. Uh, but I want to talk to you about uh, the latest project that United Ourself has been developing together with Tash Bates and all of those people over here. So it's a research collaboration that we have with the University of Edinburgh, with the Center for Mammalian Synthetic Biology, and the Center of Science, Technology, and Innovation, which is studies, which is basically social scientists who are doing uh, um, what's called in the UK RRI, research, uh, responsible research and innovation. And this is kind of work in progress where we're trying to fuse a human and a e-cell to create a life form that exists across kingdoms. Uh, using a technique which, actually the technique we ended up using is quite new, but self-fusion is not that new. Uh, it's actually started in the 1960s. And uh, basically, this is kind of, it's really work in progress. Also the, the install crew, uh, as part of the Edinburgh Science Festival really fucked up, so it doesn't look the way we would like it to look, but at least gives you some example. We exploded an incubator, the environment. We were trying to breach those membranes, both of the life forms, so the membrane, basically get the membrane of the human cell and the E cell to kind of fuse together, but also the technological membrane of the incubator was kind of breached and opened up. Um, and I'll just show you a short video. So we think that we were successful. The green ones are the E cells, the red one is the mammalian cell. And it seems that we're able to get this E-cell into the mammalian cell. Um, as I said, cell lines are not that, or cell fusion is not that new. You can actually mail order cells that exist across species. So this is, for example, uh, what's called a hybridoma, which is a fusion of a, a mouse, an Armenian hamster, and another mouse. So three different organisms, two different species created, one life form that exists and can be mail ordered through this catalog. And the same with this one, this is a mouse and a human. Those hybridomas are generating uh, in order to create human antibodies in this context, and they exist in places around the world. Those are life forms that fall under no system of taxonomy beside the catalog numbers in those tissue banks. Yeah? Where, where do we put them? Where do we put them in context of a museum? Where do we put them in the context of culture? Are they going to be relegated to the freak show, or we're just going to treat them as technology that produces stuff for us? which is one of the questions I constantly ask. Is there something special about those life forms that requires some special consideration, or we now, by treating life as a technology, it's like any other piece of technology that we have around us? Yeah, so is there something special about life uh, is the question rather than what life is. Um, all right, that was in Goma. That's a, a different version where we had a two-headed bird and a bioreactor, so the only living thing in this whole arrangement were abstracted cells within a technological frame. Yeah. Um, all right. I'll just finish with this project, although I didn't have time to speak about meat and leather, but uh, let me just finish with this, because this is another interesting project that's uh, not that recent, it's already about four years old, but to do with cultural amnesia. In 1911, a French scientist called Stéphane Leduc wrote a book called The Mechanisms of Life. Now, 1911 was also the peak of the kind of uh, philosophical struggle in regard to vitalism. Yeah? So when I say there's something special about life, I not, I'm not a, a metaphysical person, I'm a materialist, but I still think there's something about life. But at the time, obviously, you can imagine there were fights between the vitalists and the mechanics and the materialist. Leduc was obviously very much on the side of the materialist, and he wrote a book where he basically said that life is merely a complex uh, chemical reaction. And in chapter 10, 1911, he already titled the, the chapter Synthetic Biology. Yeah? So synthetic biology is not that new. The term was actually coined in 1911, and in there he talks about the fact that we know enough or we're going to soon know enough about life that we'll be able to synthesize it. That's even before they knew about DNA. And he already had the hybrids of saying, we can start to treat life like we treated, organic, like we treated chemistry, yeah? so we can do synthetic chemistry now because we figured out how to make organic compounds in the lab. We can do the same thing with life. 
One of the simplest examples, so we had like a series of recipes there, one of the simplest examples of how you can uh, make lifelike behavior using chemical reaction is, is this experiment here where you basically re refer to as artificial liquid cells that are basically formed by colored drops of concentrated salt solution and less concentrated salt solution and Indian ink. So it's ink and two different types of salt solutions. So this is 1911. Uh, this is 2014, this is our work, and we basically used the three-dimensional printer that we had. We actually worked with a, a, an amazing artist engineer called Corey Weiss, where we basically automated this 1911 protocol to create those things that, in a sense, for a while, look like living tissue, they look like cells that have nuclei, uh, they're creating some kind of a tissue, again, on this stage of the Petri dish. The thing is that after about 20 minutes, it just dissolved into this kind of murky water and this is where we are now in our relationship to life. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, we do, we have uh, at least 15 minutes for a Q&A with Oran. So I know that uh, Professor Katz is eagerly awaiting your difficult and challenging questions. So who would like to start us off? Um, thanks so much for that, that was wonderful. Um, I was really interested in what you were saying about how museums um, uh, privilege form. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could say just a little bit more about, you then made some comments about how they um, exclude sort of uh, creative um, engagements with life as a sort of socio-technically mediated process. Did I, I mean, you didn't put it in those no, terms. No, Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. right. But so, so you said something about how they exclude certain engagements with the life sciences, and I wondered if you could elaborate on that. Um, no, I don't think I said that. So, so what's really interesting, I think, you know, museums are really confused at the moment, <laughs> which is nice. It's a really nice time for us to intervene with them as well. Um, the the, the traditional role of a museum, of, and that's what's kind of going back to the Jacques Laub uh, kind of reference of, of moving from being a merely descriptive to a prescriptive, is that life and the life sciences, and by extension, this idea of natural history is moving away from being solely descriptive. So, you know, they would send scientists on exploration, they would find species, they would name them using an outdated system of Lanin and taxonomy, and, and put them in the collection and, you know, think they've done their job. Now we're starting to have life forms, and as I showed with those hybridomas, that are, are in a sense part of the natural history, but they don't exist under any form of classification and any form of uh, 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 cultural articulation. And, and th those are exactly the life forms that I'm interested in, and those are exactly the problematic life forms that within the context of a museum fall like Dolly in between the natural history and the cultural history. And I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, th I think that this is the area where there's a resistance uh, to, of museums, and you know, this is something I've seen also uh, within kind of my, my work with museums. The, the head of collections are very, very possessive. So curators of zoology, for example, would find it really problematic to how do you deal with like, the life form that we just created, which is a yeast-human hybrid, yeah? uh, which exists only within kind of a, a, a microbiological context. Yeah? So, so, but those are becoming more and more important life forms to our existence. That's a new ecology in a sense. Uh, let's see if I might have, yeah. So a new ecology is really kind of those life forms because they're going to escape our control, you know, and this is by definition. Um, so in a sense, we are going to have a life, life forms that we were involved and responsible in generating that exist outside any form of taxonomy and, uh, and uh, natural history that are creating the new ecology. Yeah, so how are we engaging, we are going to engage with this new ecology is kind of a question that we will have to answer in some way. And rather than those things being relegated to the freak show, I think museums have to play a really important role in leading the way in positioning them both scientifically and culturally. Thanks so much for that um, really interesting talk. I would suggest that the cultural form that those uh, life forms have is intellectual property. Um, mm. I'd say that they, they would have been patented um, and that that is their, their value as intellectual property. And I would also add to that, I think what's really interesting is that um, Vicanti sought to copyright and not patent the, the yeah. mouse here. Yeah. Um, anyway, just a comment. 
it, it is a great comment, and this is exactly the problem of what does it mean to make life in a neoliberal economy, and, and, and what responsibilities we have around it in regard to that. So, you know, the interesting thing about patents that have a, a, a finite life, uh, you know, in a sense, yeah, so 19 years, uh, the interesting thing with copyrights that they have 99 years after the death of the author, and actually there was a company in France, for example, who was trying to basically copyright DNA sequences as music as a way to get copyright protection over the DNA sequence as opposed to patent protection, so they'll have a longer term uh, uh, royalties of the use of those uh, sequences of uh, DNA. They didn't manage to get it, but it's kind of interesting to see. But the question is, you know, is this really the right way to think about the future of life if we are allowing those types of, you, you, okay, another really segue, but an interesting story in this context. It's CRISPR, yeah, so CRISPR is this new found way of, the claim is that it's the most accurate and most precise way to make, to do genetic engineering, as opposed to what happened before, where you would kind of basically carry a piece of uh, genetic material on a virus as a vector, and it will go in and put it anywhere. Uh, and then, you wanna say something, or no? Or? Okay, all right, all right, all right, that's good. Um, Anyway, so, but one of the, the you know, the, the rhetoric of the synthetic biologist is that this is finally giving us the way to rationally design life, yeah, and rationally design is the, the operative word here. At the very same time, that at the moment there's a huge legal battle between Harvard and Berkeley, between George Church and uh, Jennifer Dahua, about who's the prime primate that is on the head of the pack as the copyright holder, or as the patent holder of that, which is in a sense just advanced primate grooming behavior, totally irrational. <laughs> so how can an irrational living biological system can ever claim to rationally design other living biological systems when we are engaged in those shared fictions that have no grounding in any biological reality of copyrights and patent laws? Yeah. We have a question at the back and then oh. up here. Thank you for your talk. Um, so I'm just wondering, just because of the recent cultural shift towards humanism and how the public is now very against animal testing and um, against GMO crops as well as other animals, even though I know um, GMO has been around for centuries, how does that affect um, us as scientists and artists in this context? Yeah, I, I want to show you something in this context. So animal rights organizations are now using, basically they're claiming that, uh, and, and I'm sorry, the image I'm about to show is quite disturbing, but basically they're recommending the use of tissue culture as a way to reduce animal experimentation. Uh, they're recommending actually the use of tissue culture as a way of growing um, meats in the lab as opposed to an animal. The problem around most of those is they are to do with the aesthetics of our relationship to how direct the victim is in our viewfinder, yeah? This is the kind of, those are, are, are the realities of tissue culture. Those are the realities of growing meat in the lab. We're still using fetal calf serum. The problem that we have in our times is that we are much more happy to hide the victims of our existence, not eliminate them, but hide the victims. So a lot of what we see in our technology is not about kind of removing the victim, eliminating the victim. It's about just removing them from a, a, a site so we can go and consume the world around us without feeling guilty. So, so I, I, yes, we are, you know, it's really nice to see that people are opposing animal experimentation and more and more people are moving towards kind of a more ethical relationship to other life forms. But in most cases, it's not the real case. They're being duped into thinking that they're doing good in the world. So let, let me put, put it another way, and this is something actually I failed to mention. When I talked about kind of our control of other systems, let me just leave that, okay. Yeah. Oops. Uh, when I talked about the control of other living systems, I should add, by definition, any attempt to control another system that existed outside of your uh, control previously is, by definition, an act of violence. Yeah? So what we need to make choices are the degree of violence that we're willing to exercise against the world, not whether we are violent or not. By definition, our existence is a violent existence towards other. And we need to somehow get away from the self-righteous idea that we're doing good in the world to a more self-reflective idea that we're not, but we should minimize how bad we do in the world. Uh, what I refer to as informed hypocrisy. 
We, um, we're coming near to the end. Could I just see a show of hands of how many more people want to ask questions? So we have one in the middle, then one, two, three. Do we have time for four more questions, do you think? Okay. Nope. Four more. Okay. I don't understand what's... Yes. <laughs> in the meantime, just for your entertainment, uh, at the time. So. <laughs> so those are food performances I'm doing as well around the, exactly those questions around yes, our relationship um, too. Yes, yeah. it's, it's, I'm yeah. trying to, to keep my analytics going while I have this visceral response to this that's good. image, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I was also thinking about the covert organ trading that's going on. It's mm. also not on, on display so much. But the, uh, the question I wanted to ask is, you've emphasized the rational, pseudo-rational scientists, the artists, all our attempts to um, make sense of this, display or not, hide and conceal and reveal. But um, what about the intelligence of the life itself that's on display? So the question of consciousness, I was also thinking of the immaterial um, human service provisions that is being yeah. you know, unequally distributed across the globe and life forms. So you're talking about the human or the non-human? Both, the actually. Yeah. I think, to yeah. me, I'm an anthropologist, so okay. I see everything in um, human lenses, humanoid but terms. Okay. Yeah. So no, but I think you're totally right, and this is something that we tend to forget about. That you know, When we talked about the fact that growing meat in the lab creates a new class of exploitation, philosophers and ethicists came to us and said, how dare you say that? You know, we are doing good in the world because we removed it from the animal you know, so forget, let's say they found a solution for this uh, fetal calf serum. Uh, we still believe that, you know, even in the level, the cellular level, we're still exploiting other systems for our benefits. There's still kind of labor that is being given to us, which is like moving away, you know, this is kind of the interesting thing about, and that's why I started with the, the pigs, the meatpacking. You know, animal labor was the thing that drove us, and, and other human labor, which wasn't consider, was considered to be less than human. Then the Industrial Revolution came, we kind of relegated it to kind of non-human labor, uh, uh, within kind of technologies. Now we bring it back to biological labor, and this is kind of the fourth industrial revolution as the uh, EMF is talking about, yeah? So, so we want to highlight exactly those cases that we are, and, and you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not taking a high moral ground there. I, I'm, I'm implicated, and this is part of my experience as an artist. I wanna be implicated in those things in order for me to actually uh, have the ability, and this is also what I, I tell anyone who comes to my lab, it's like, by coming to the lab, you're implicated, you have to figure out a more nuanced way rather than a self-righteous way to engage with those, with those issues. Yeah. Um, hey. Hmm? It's too disturbing? <laughs> you, you don't like it? Yeah. Right, <laughs> it is distracting. All right. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can multitask. Yeah. All right, fair enough. <laughs> See you. Um, I'm wondering if you've ever worked with Henrietta Lacks's cells, and the oh, it's here. Uh, hello. Hello. Yeah. I'm wondering if you've worked with Henrietta Lacks's cells, and also if you've come up with your own definition of what life is um, through your right. research. Great question. Let me see if I can find. Um, there were a few projects that I worked with Henrietta Lacks cells. Uh, um, obviously, they've got a very interesting history, but uh, in, in the level that I'm operating with cells, I don't really see much difference between Henrietta Lacks cells and cells that were taken without consent by so many other organisms, human and otherwise. So, you know, the fact that she's being pitched as the poster kind of yeah. cell line. Uh, um, it's is interesting because her daughter wanted to go meet her mother, you know, so yeah. it has this human relevance. Yeah, no, no, there, there is a lot, but I, I can tell you a story. story. Um, so, so in some of our projects, and actually we had one project specifically where we actually embodied her shadow, her silhouette, using her own cells as well. Uh, but uh, in, in a death chamber, so we de designed this device that actually in some stage in the exhibition moved from a life-giving system to a death chamber of the cells that were kind of growing over the silhouette of Henrietta. And so it was an indeterminate, so it was all about the indeterminacy of both what the cells are and when they're living or dead. Uh, but, but just another example, I also run workshops and I often use uh, cells and I often, because of the kind of the story around Henrietta, I, I ask uh, to, to work with the HeLa cells when, when it's possible. And at the end of the workshop, we always have this, I, I ask the participants to think about how they're going to dispose of the living biological material that they were involved in manipulating. Uh, you know, and, and it's their choice, you know, because in the lab, what we usually do, we just bleach them and throw them 
down the drain or we kind of uh, sterilize them and then we dispose of them. And, and I asked the artist, you know, is there anything special you want to do about those cells? And most people would uh, basically say, ah, those bacteria work, it's not interesting. Those animal cells, maybe the human cells is something we want to give some of, kind of, uh, thanks to. And uh, in that specific workshop, um, we're using with the HeLa cells and we were just about to do it and one of the participants says, those cells are not really human cells, they're not Henrietta cells, they're actually the cancer that killed her. And my husband died exactly a year from, you know, today uh, from cancer. And for me, this is the cancer that killed my husband. It's not, it doesn't stand for Henrietta, it stands for the cancer that killed my husband. Kill the fuckers, you know. And, and she was really violent towards those cells. So those kind of different relationships that you can have with those things is, is really important as well. How, and, and again, it says, how are we going to articulate? So going back to your next question about if I made a decision about life. I, I'm very carbon life biased. So I don't really care for artificial life, although I think that some other people should care for it, but that's outside of my kind of jurisdiction. My plate is full already. But um, I, I, I want to believe that there's something special about it. I'm still trying to find what it is that makes it special, beside the fact that I'm a living biological, a carbon-based living biological systems myself, and the people are, oh, the, 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 the things I care for most are also other carbon life forms. So I think I would like not to treat them the way, the same way I treat my, even my phone or my car or my furniture or any other inanimate object. But uh, it's still, it's a, it's a, I don't think I'll ever find an answer, but this is really one of the main motivations of my work is, is to figure out how we can develop this form of uh, secular vitalism that actually believes that there's something special, that there's some things that we maybe have to think about when we start to manipulate life and not treat it as yet another raw material that seems to be the case now. Okay, I'm going to gather a question at the back here. Uh, thank you, uh, Oron, for your uh, inspiring talk. I was just wondering if um, there has been, given the context of your talk here in this museum, mm -hmm. um, if there has been a sketchy provenance based around a lot of our collections, mm -hmm. has there been any um, luck in harvesting human cells from patina and creating an artist from an artwork? <laughs> So, okay, we demonstrated that you can harvest viable cells from animals that were killed for about two weeks. Yeah. After that, it's uh, getting a bit difficult. Yeah. The, so I would say, and I, I would imagine that you were talking about maybe one of the masters, one of those. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice proposition. I don't think it's, it's possible. And, you, you know, and when someone, and, and we've seen some conversation around kind of this idea of DNA, so you, you might be able to get the DNA of the artist from those things. I'm, uh, personally, I'm, I'm a DNA denier. I don't really care about DNA that much. I think that uh, in the future, people would look back at our times and realize that this is another form of uh, what I refer to as DNA chauvinism. The reason why we're so obsessed about DNA is because this is the only thing the male contributes. So anything else <laughs> is not important. And it's similar to this idea of the eumaculus when they look down in the microscope and looked at sperm and saw already the little human there because the female body is the empty vessel where it can cook. Yeah? Uh, so, so our focus on DNA is, is, is some, uh, some obsession which I find uh, problematic. So you know, if you tell me that you found a human DNA in, in a painting, in a patina of painting, uh, which might be of the artist, I say, so what? You know? so, yeah. I think uh, there's just one last question. Thank you. I just had a question uh, just to draw you back into the world of art. Oh, no, um, yeah. uh, you know, as, a, as opposed to the, not that it's oppositional, but um, mm -hmm. as well as the museum. And I guess I'm a, I'm a sort of child of that hopeful era that you started working mm. in as well, mm. where we were looking at open-ended research mm. uh, possibilities yeah. for what we were doing. And, uh, you know, I, this evening on my way here, I walked past a, an advertisement for the Archibald that said, um, the Archibald is the Melbourne Cup of the art world uh, basically, was just like, well, that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Um, and I, can't, I, I just wanted to ask you about what your hope is for the future of um, the kinds of practices that we are interested in, and in in this kind of neoliberal yeah. last gasp context, and you know whether this turn away from um, science engaged practice um, or, you know, interdisciplinary practice is also another hiding, another way of hiding from um, the, th the questions that are difficult for us to answer. 
Oh, okay, <laughs> there's so many things there that need to be unpacked, but first of all, let's start from the end. Internationally, actually, there's a huge resurgence of so-called art and science, and, and actually, personally, I, I don't really like this term, and, and I, you know, I see myself as an artist who's interested in life, and our relationship to life, so, you know, the most radical things that are happening to life at the moment are in the lab, so I parked myself there, and it seems, you know, there's enough material for me to work for generations, but... Um, but this whole field of art and science actually is becoming even more problematic in light of the neoliberal approach because artists are losing their contract with society and they are becoming those promoters of the innovation paradigm. And because they have a license to lie, they're the one who's being pushed forward to capture the public imagination, or actually more worse than that, to capture the investor's imagination into investing into those kind of the new techno bubbles that are upon us. Yeah, so this is kind of a really problematic area that need like, and, and I have like special talks that I only talk about <laughs> that. Um, but to do with kind of also the loss of this idea of um, being able to operate, you know, in an open-ended way, uh, this is, again, it's part of a much, much larger, we see what's happening to universities all over the world, you know, that it, it, the Royal College of Arts in London closed down the humanities program, closed down any critical approaches. Within the art, world, the art school, I think there's little islands there that are still allowed to do it, but within the design school where I uh, did most of my work, they shut down any form of criticality because this is the last thing that this new paradigm needs, yeah? critical reflection into the bullshit they're feeding us. And what we see is that artists are being coerced to do so as well. So they're becoming those either very pleasant, kind of very tested kind of uh, lapdogs, or active promoters of the very same thing that they are supposed to question and shine a mirror against. Yeah. And I, I don't know if there's a way out of it. I, I'm in an extremely privileged position as well, and I don't know how long I'm going to last, maybe after this talk, and I won't come back to a, for, for a job. But artists, I think, have to resist this idea of being co-opted within that, because we have a very, very important role in society. And, as, and, and again, because we have the license to lie, we are also, in the end, becoming the most trustworthy because we've got nothing to lose in this context. And if we are to um, start to play the game of outcomes and all of the other ticking boxes, uh, we're, we're basically going to lose any justification for our existence, which is I'm already happening. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful uh, note to end on. Um, before we thank Oran once again, I just want to announce that the next Human Nature Lecture Series talk is being held three weeks from tonight on June the 14th, right here, where Alice Tapunga Somerville will speak about Topata Taro Roots Earth, the Indigenous Politics of Gardening. A little different than tonight's talk, but maybe not. So um, hope to see you there as well. But now let's give one uh, final thank you to Oran. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.